Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and this is Democracy in Action. Yeah, you said you give her one more time, like you're gonna do something. Are you serious? No, you are not. Represent. She's not under arrest. What is for what? Under arrest for what? For trying to see something that our governor is doing? Our governor is signing a bill that affects all Georgians, and you're going to arrest an elected representative. Why does the governor have more power than, the, than a representative? Why are you arresting her? Stop arresting her. Why are you arresting her? Why? Cite the code. What is she in violation of? I want you to cite the code. Cite the code. Cite it. What are you? Cite the code. Cite the code. Cite the code. Why are you arresting her? Under what? Under what? Under what law are you arresting her? Why are you arresting her? Why are you arresting her? Tell us now. Why are you arresting her? Cited. Give me a reason why you're arresting her. That woman knocking on the governor's door, uh, she's my new hero, Georgia State Representative Park Cannon. On the other side of that door was the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, who's signing an outrageous piece of legislation, a law that will make it harder for thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of Georgians to vote, a law that will make it harder to vote by mail, and if you don't want to vote by mail, it'll be harder to find a place to drop your ballot off early because there's early voting. And if you want to line up your polling place, okay. While you're waiting, <laughs> this law bans anyone from bringing you food or water because we've seen those lines when you know in recent elections. We aren't just losing the soul of our democracy right now. We are losing our humanity. The Republican-controlled state legislature passed this heinous law so they could win by suppression what they are losing in voting. They lost three statewide elections last year for president and for two Senate seats, flipping the Senate. So what was their solution? Work harder, fight to convince voters to vote differently next time? No, 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 their answer is to stop people from voting, to block their access, to suppress the vote. Governor Kemp signed this law last night behind that locked door. Representative Cannon tried to force open that locked door. Actually, she just knocked on it. Let's just be very clear. She knocked on that door because she thought it was her right to see him sign that law, to bring public scrutiny down on Governor Kemp for this anti-democratic legislation. And you saw the response. State police arresting a member of the state legislature inside the Capitol for the offense of, uh, as they were being told that they were arresting a sitting lawmaker for nothing. A woman of color who they took into an elevator alone with them. For what? For requesting to observe her governor signing a piece of legislation she dissented from? The image of armed police officers leading an elected representatives off in handcuffs should chill every American. They didn't answer what code what they were citing the arrest for, the fact that these police were being used to protect the governor from advocates, from his colleagues, for the right to vote, should shame us all. This is authoritarianism. This is how fascists operate. This is Jim Crow. The good news is our country still has an assemblance of a rule of law and voting rights advocates they sued within hours to block this legislation by Governor Kemp and the Republican legislature. I spoke to one of those. She was fired up and preparing to intervene in every state where Republicans try to undo the power of voters by blocking them from voting. Make no mistake, this is a civil rights issue for our time. It is a civil rights fight for our time. I'll give Republicans credit for this. They are not subtle. They are trying to hold back the popular tide by keeping eligible voters from actually voting. Young people, people of color. And we can't let them win. We must stand with Representative Cannon and with every legislator and every advocate in every state who is knocking on those locked doors. We must fight to keep the Republicans from taking back our deserved right to vote. And we must demand that Governor Kemp apologize publicly 
That was an embarrassment for his state. It's an embarrassment for the officers. It was an embarrassment for our democracy. We have a great show for you today. It's Femme Friday. Esperanza Fonseca, organizer extraordinaire, is here with Suling Brown. First time on the show, old friend. And when we come back from this brief break, we will be talking to Professor Suyapa Portillo Vieira, uh, who's here to talk about working class resistance in Honduras. Specifically, there are attacks against women happening through the legislature that are shocking. You'll, you're really gonna be blown away. All right, we'll be right back after the break. Right, guys, you've heard me talk about Sunset Lake CBD. I did not believe in CBD products. True story. I had bought them before when everybody was hyping them up and I felt like I was spending a lot of money and it wasn't doing anything. And then Sunset Lake CBD, which is a farmer owned company that ships CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Uh, I discovered them. They have all sorts of products for everybody. They offer tinctures, which help me sleep at night and get those aches and pains away. Gummies, solves when I have little like breakouts. Um, it immediately helps out. It's also like really calming because there's Arnica in them. And then they have coffee as well, which is amazing because like you get the the energy from coffee, but it's this chill energy. Uh, all of these products are designed to help with stress, aches and pains. And it's originally, the Sunset Lake uh, CBD farm was originally a dairy farm at the Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, the Ben and Jerry's dairy farm in Vermont. And they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp. When you're a customer, you're supporting sustainable agriculture that enhances rural communities and creates meaningful employment in those communities. And their minimum wage is $15 an hour. Take note. But also, the employees of Sunset Lake CBD own the majority of the company, and they support through advertising, independent media like our show, The Nomi Key Show, The David Pakman Show, and you know those guys over at The Majority Report. I love their products. I you know, I don't advertise for things that I don't uh, believe in. Uh, I love the gummies, but I've had to pull back on the gummies because I'm trying to cut out sugar right now from my diet. Um, but they're amazing. They, I had the deepest sleep I'd had in years and I have a lot of sleeping issues. I've talked about my, I have a steps slash sleep monitor that I use now um, because I toss and turn so much when I sleep that I wasn't really sure how much sleep I was getting. My sleep has gotten better. I'm getting up literally hours earlier, like before sunrise now, because my sleep is deeper. It's incredible. I mean, this is this morning, five o'clock in the morning, I'm like up alert, not groggy. So it's, I'm getting deeper sleeps. I'm waking up clear headed and minded. And um, I don't know, it's really made a difference in my life. Dorsey, how are you feeling about Sunset Lake CBD? I actually oh, like it. Yeah, I'm going to go. This is what Dorsey looks like, everybody, per my uh, mom's request. She's very upset you weren't on camera. Yeah, I, I, I decided to make her happy. And also, I was looking back at it, and it's like my, like my name is up there in a black box when I'm talking. I'm like, okay, we can't have that. So just, uh, just for, the, uh, for the look and everything, I'm doing it for you. Not that it's like something to look at. Anyway, but yeah, <laughs> back to Sunset Lake. Uh, I actually took a gummy before this because I knew I was going to go on camera. <laughs> And I'm uh, I'm pretty relaxed. I'm pretty anxiety free about this. And uh, <laughs> no nerves being on. <laughs> not really. I don't really like to be on camera, but uh, yeah. So uh, big fan in my household, and I'm trying to get my parents into it. Uh, I've sent them some, and I haven't heard back from them. But when I hear back from them, I'll report back and let you know what they think. But yeah, they're the same as me. They're kind of like. Uh, we tried CBD. It wasn't really didn't do anything for us. But uh, for me, I as soon as I tried it from uh, using the majority report code, I was a big fan. And now I get to use the Nomiki code and uh, <laughs> I'll be putting in my tincture co uh, order using that code very soon. My parents love it. Um, we ordered some stuff. They ordered some stuff. Uh, I think my aunt did as well. It's like I gave some fudge to my aunt because they sent us this like lovely fudge pack. Oh my God, it was delicious. But I, like I said, I'm trying to cut down on sugar. So I gave my aunt and she's, she loves, she was like, this is amazing. I don't get that weird edge. It was it's delicious, delicious and fudge. It, the fudge tastes like really good. So you have to just be careful like because uh, actually, it's just like eating fudge, you know? And then you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm really relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> you're not high, but you're really relaxed. Really relaxed. No, that's, I mean, it's like you said, the deep sleep. It's like, I uh, I don't sleep very well. I've never have. And, you know, I'm only going to get an, you know, a certain amount of hours to sleep every night anyway, no matter what, if it's good sleep or bad sleep. And, you know, since I've, I've been uh, using CBD, especially... Sunset Lake, it's just like, just 
relaxed me. It's great. I like, I'm, I'm really wake. I think that's why I'm waking up so early or I'm just getting older because I think that happens when you get older. <laughs> Don't do that. People don't get older. <laughs> It, it, it I've been you. old forever, I think, because I just never get any. Do you remember when, like, we used to? I, I was always like, I can't wait to be older, and then you go to the, I can't wait to not have a birthday. Yeah, I got over that real quick. I was like, I can't wait to be older. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's coming. Okay, now let's uh, let's, let's blow this down. They don't tell you about the aches. <laughs> All right, guys, if you want to go check out Sunset Lake CBD, you can use the promo code NOMI, N-O-M-I, for 20% off of your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com. Use that promo code. It's NOMI, N-O-M-I, uh, for 20% off of your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com. All right, we will be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. This is Fem Friday, as, as, as everybody knows, and we try to open up, um, just just try to share stories of what's happening uh, in terms of with women across the world on this, you know, every Friday we try our best. And I read this piece in Jacobin uh, a few weeks ago, and I was not surprised actually, but horrified. You know, there's that weird balance of this is the typical, I'm not surprised by any means, but um I just feel as if we're we're at a stalemate um, in terms of progress on issues that you know 30 years ago should have been dealt with. Uh, our next guest is Suyapa Portillo. She is um, she's a professor, associate professor of Chicano uh, a Latino, a trans transnational studies at Pitzer College. Uh, she wrote this piece in Jacobin called "In Andorras, the Right is Permanently Looking." Locking in its ban, abortion ban. <laughs> oh my God. Let me say that again. In Honduras, the right is permanently locking in its abortion ban. I've been clearly moved today. I've been very frustrated by this Georgia experience and I feel like my words are, are, are jumbled. So please, I apologize for that. Uh, Siapa, thank you for joining us today. You're on mute. There you go. Thank you for having me. So this is, um, I, was, I, I was shook reading this article. And like I said, I shouldn't be shook because it's just business as usual in, in Honduras. But I think what's so alarming is just how the global community does not seem to be um, speaking out. You know, all of these advocates for women and children, all these neoliberal advocates for neo uh, for, for women and children who have foundations um, seem silent uh, when such an atrocity is happening through the legislative process. So can you just um, maybe give us a little bit of background on on how the government of Honduras has treated women, um, the LGBTQ community, and and you know specifically abortion rights, uh, historically over the last few decades. Well, historically, uh, abortion has been you know banned in Honduras as it has been in most of Latin America because you know these are Catholic countries. Over fifty percent of the population are Catholic. You know, over forty percent of the population are evangelical Christians. So um, basically you know, they've been against abortion and, and particularly with the evangelical community, they've been actively organizing against LGBT rights. Um, the problem in Honduras is uh, that kind of ex exacerbates the violence against women and LGBT people is the 2009 coup, which um, actually deposed a democratically elected president. And since then we've had these really shady processes called elections uh, that are not really um, you know, uh, people don't really trust these processes, right? There's a lot of corruption. Um, I think some U.S. legislators have talked about corruption. They've even linked the current president to drug trafficking through a New York federal court. So what's happening is that all of a sudden these uh, religious, hierarchical religious groups, and I want to be clear that I'm talking about the hierarchical um, you know, sort of Catholic church and evangelical church. I think that there's a lot of good happening in terms of Jesuits working in, in with people and providing aid after the hurricane. So I really want to talk about the powers, right? The, the Opus Dei organization in Honduras or the Confederation of Evangelical Christians. They, they are now enmeshed with the government through the Nationalist Party. So the president has allowed this sort of what used to be separation of church and state to now be conflated. And these agendas are now taking hold. So I think what's going on in Honduras, 
it's also it, it can be a reaction to what's happening in Argentina with abortion rights, but also it could be uh, just an overall right wing agenda um, taking hold in Latin America, right, and trying to control women's bodies and LGBT communities um, and preventing people from having rights. I don't know if that kind of gives you a little background. Um, it, but they, there was existing le- legislation that banned abortion, as you said. Uh, so, so, so what makes this worse? What makes these recent actions worse? So it was already illegal to have an abortion in Honduras, uh, El Salvador, and Guatemala, for instance. If women have an abortion, they can be prosecuted and go to jail for having an illegal abortion. Um, you know, it's considered, uh, you know, a crime, basically. Um, so that was already banned. And then also... Um, gay marriage in, in 2008 was banned, kind of uh, in a similar way in which DOMA uh, happened in the United States, right? It was banned uh, by the president through an executive action. And so um, what makes this worse is that now they have enshrined this into the Constitution. So it is written in the Constitution that it's illegal to have an abortion and that a child exists at conception. We, and, and, and also they have enshrined in the constitution that marriage is only legal between a man and a woman, um, between a man and a, and, and a woman, right? So a, um, heterosexual marriage is, is the only marriage recognized. So they did this in a shady process and in a fast track process. So after the January victory in Argentina, almost immediately this law was introduced. There was supposed to be a discussion of the law. There was supposed to be rebuttal. The groups in the the you know the people right the feminists and the LGBT groups were supposed to be invited to have uh, to present to the Congress and to have discussions and that didn't happen so they just kind of rushed it through and within one day it was posted in La Gaceta which is a national newspaper and then it becomes enshrined into the Constitution. This makes it almost impossible to change. You would need 75% of Congress to vote to change it. And even in the United States, we can't get 75% of the vote on almost anything. And it's almost impossible to do that uh, in Honduras. So that's what that's the difficulty here. So, you know, aside from the violence that we're seeing, right, over 600 women are killed a year in femicides that go uninvestigated over, you know, we've had over 300 murders, mostly of trans women uh, since the coup d'etat in 2009. And extreme, like over 2,000 people caravans leaving Honduras since 2018, clearly people are telling us as they arrive to the border seeking asylum, I can't live in Honduras. It's violent for women and trans women in Honduras. And clearly this is not the answer to address that violence, right? This is actually uh, punishing uh, the victims themselves. I mean, this seems like um, such a moment where the Biden administration understanding uh, some of the, you know, the, the, obviously the coup in 2009, uh, what what kind of created the circumstances, uh, the ground made it fertile for uh, this type of government to, to rise. But given the crisis at the border right now, I mean, you'd think logically that the Biden administration would say, okay, enough, right? And I'm just curious, like, w- w- is is anybody in the international community sounding the alarms about about specifically this constitution, the way that this 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 was forced through in an undemocratic way um, quickly uh, into the constitution, has has the UN spoken out? Has the Biden administration anybody? The UN has spoken out because since the violence um, post coup, the UN now has a, an an office in Honduras. Uh, they have issued statements. The the feminist movement is really well organized, and they have a huge network in Europe and in in Latin America. Um, you know, but as one of the feminists told me, really, they have to exhaust all possibilities for change within the nation before um, they can really take um, international action. But you have to kind of exhaust all those possibilities. So they are going to rebuttal. They're going to go to the constitutional. Um, they're going to rebuttal this constitutional change and exhaust those uh, internal um channels before they go to the international community. But yeah, there hasn't been uh, an outspoken anything from the Biden administration. Um, I think that one of the things that's uh, critical to to understand is that uh, Biden was part of the administration that executed the the coup d'etat in 2009 when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Um, And, you know, 
it, it served them at that moment to oust a democratically elected president. Uh, but they, they, uh, it doesn't serve them now because, you know, Juan Orlando Hernandez was an ally to Trump, is an ally to, you know, sort of other right wingers in, in Latin America in, in, and in Europe. And now he's starting to become a thorn for the Biden administration. You know, more money is going to go to Honduras. And the Biden-Harris plan for Central America includes money for security, which, which really means money for military and police. And those are the same perpetrators of the violence that we're seeing right now. So it doesn't make any sense. Um, also, you know, most of the children who are detained, the unaccompanied minors, we're over 3,000 of them, um, you know, are of Central American descent or Central Americans. Um, and again, they say unaccompanied because, you know, maybe uh, they were with, a, with an uncle or a grandmother, right? Not with their direct father. Um, but many children that are currently detained right now, you know, are of Honduran descent. So to me, the Biden-Harris administration needs to deal with the root causes of this. And for many scholars, the root causes are the U.S. reach into Honduras with the 2009 coup, but also capitalist, uh, you know, um, sort of uh, investments in Honduras. Uh, mining. Mining, uh, extractive industries, dams, you know, uh, cutting of, of national forests, the African palm, uh, you know, which is used for biofuel in Europe and in Canada and the U.S., but it's devastating to local communities because it drains the soil of, of nutrients, which people can use to grow maize and corn, uh, corn, maize and, um, and beans, which are staples for the working class in Honduras. So, the Biden administration needs to deal with the real root causes and needs to stop investing in military aid, but rather in humanitarian aid. Like we haven't seen COVID vaccines arrive from the Biden-Harris administration. We've seen them arrive from Israel, sort of a right-wing, you know, um, lead, sort of right-wing connections with, with the president. Uh, but we haven't seen any real humanitarian aid, even after the, the two hurricanes that hit Honduras in November. People are still sleeping on the side of the road because their neighborhoods were devastated. So um, can we talk a little bit about the femicides? Because uh, femicides do not get enough attention at all. And uh, the numbers are, are, are shocking. But specifically, there's this one case with Kayla Martinez that you write about. Um, can, you, can you tell us what happened with her? Yeah, so Kayla Martinez was a young woman who, uh, there's a curfew in Honduras because of the COVID-19 uh, restrictions. And uh, the only way that the, pre this is an authoritarian precedent and the only way that he can control people is by militarizing the streets and, and having curfew. Uh, she was out past curfew. Many working class people are out past curfew. I think it's like 10 p.m. Uh, because they have to work or they're coming back from work. So they are put in jail overnight and given a ticket. And so that's what happened to her. But, um, you know, she was separated from the rest of the other people because uh, there were men and women cells. Um, in the middle of the night, she was rushed to the hospital. She stopped crying and the people in the next cell heard that she had stopped crying. So they rushed her to the hospital. She wasn't breathing. And the police told the coroner to say that she died at the hospital, but in reality, the coroner determined that she was dead uh, at when she was picked up, right? That she arrived at the hospital without life. Um, this is really uh, shocking and it proves in a very concrete way. And the reason this got attention was because people started to protest that this happened in La Esperanza in Tibuca, which is the, the area where Berta Cáceres is from. Uh, where her famous uh, femicide happened in March of 2016. And so it got a lot of attention for that reason, right? Um, and, and, norm and links the police directly to what happened. Normally, it's really hard to link the police. It's really hard to link the military. Um, and so in this case, it was very, very public. Um, in reality, this is a, a I hate to say it this way, but it's a classic sort of femicide in a country like Honduras or El Salvador, where the military are directly linked or the, or the police um, to violence of women, like sexual violence. It seems that she might have been sexually assaulted. Um, and 
after her family and people protested and denounced the situation, they are now receiving death threats. So we know that the state is involved and we are clear that the state has to respond to this situation. But Kayla is one of 300, 600 women every year. Many of them are killed, you know, police and military, right? Uh, but trans women almost often, almost all the time are linked to police and military because they work the streets, they work the streets at night, and their biggest consumers are military and police. So um, one of the biggest cases that uh, is being uh, heard right now by the Inter-American Court of, on Human Rights is the case of Vicky Hernandez, a trans woman who was killed during curfew in 2009. So the case of Vicky Hernandez, she was killed in 2009, and it isn't until now, 2020, 2021, that her case has made it into, into a international court and it's being heard in international court. That's how much women don't matter in places like Honduras, right? It's really hard to prove who did it, but also there's intra-family violence. There's violence from men uh, towards their wives. There's violence from boyfriends, violence from, you know, any local person, any local gang member, uh, you know, anything. Women's lives don't matter because the state doesn't prosecute those who killed women. So the message is you can do whatever you want to women because nothing's going to happen to you because you're going to be able to escape punishment. But the thing, the, the reason is because the police and the military are also perpetrators. So they themselves, the people who are supposed to oversee justice, right, are the ones who are also perpetrators in this case. So Kayla Martinez's case is going to be really important because it's directly linked to the police and there's so many witnesses in the cell next door or people who were brought in with her and um, and the people who are the resistance in La Esperanza in Tijuca who are really keeping, uh, you know, the police on check on this case. Um. Can you remind people what happened with Berta Casares? Berta Casares uh, was a feminist, uh, indigenous Lenca uh, environmentalist. She spent her entire life uh, with COPIN, the Council for Indigenous People, a popular pe indigenous people in Honduras. And what she did was uh, they were working on various things. One, uh, against mining. Basically, mining has always existed in Honduras, but it's been underground. What The mining that we're talking about now is extractive. It's open-face mining. There's also um, damming of traditional rivers. Uh, there's still a large population in Honduras of indigenous people and Afro-indigenous people who rely on the rivers to for their small plots of land. Uh, still largely a subsistence economy. Um, a, a sort of agricultural uh, self-subsistence uh, for indigenous people. There aren't, there isn't much quote-unquote development, if you will, that benefits people. Um, they want to dam rivers to create to create more electricity, and they want to, um, you know, cut trees and, uh, you know, in national forests. All of this is presented to people in Honduras as development, but again, it's not development for people because for mining, over 90% of the funds go to the extractive companies and I think 1% stays in Honduras. So the community doesn't get very much. So she got involved in this process for the last 10 years um, and has been protecting the rivers. The last river she was uh, working to protect was the Hualcarque River. And this river was an indigenous river that uh, many indigenous people, the Lenca people came to this river for everything, for food, for water, uh, for their plants. Um, for rituals, right? It's a very symbolic river. She was protecting the river and was outspoken and had really gotten the international community to pay attention to what was going, in Honduras, going on in Honduras. Six members of her organization were killed for protecting the environment. And then uh, finally she was ambushed on March 2nd, 2016 in her home and shot to death. And what's really interesting about this is that there was a witness there with her in the house who survived. And, um, and the other interesting thing about it is that um, they were able to prosecute this case. Uh, still, the intellectual, uh, the owners of DESA Corporation are still free. Uh, they basically prosecuted the actors of the, of the, of the murder, but not who ordered the, the crime hasn't been, um, hasn't been apprehended or, or put in jail yet. So this is a case that's going to evolve in the next few months. It, uh, interesting to see because really 
it's the first case of prosecution on the femicide that's going to be significant in the history of Honduras and for indigenous people in Latin America, as we see this happening throughout Latin America, not just in Honduras. Um, what I think is interesting about Berta's case is that it was international support, including people like movie stars, you know, speaking out about it, that brought it, brought some justice to the case. Constant and constant international um, help. So we need the international community to speak about this, to be outraged about what's going on in Honduras, because it works. It's the only thing that uh, this government listened to. It's an authoritarian government. Uh, really, uh, we haven't seen something like this since the you know military regimes of the 60s and 70s, to be honest. And so um, international support is critical. Supporting organizations that are demanding uh, from the state, feminist organizations like Centro del Derecho de la, de la Mujer or Catrachas.org with the double T, right? Supporting organizations that are already making demands of the state. Um, Ofrane, the organization of fraternal, uh, the Black Fraternal Organization of Honduras and Copin, uh, Berta's organization. These are the, the sort of leading organizations pushing the state to do the right thing. And I think that's what the international community needs to do um, at this point. What was so, I think one of the reasons why this was so shocking um, was because just just the year prior, she'd won this International Environmental Award and uh, been recognized internationally for her work. She's the prime of her career. People are paying attention to her work. Um, but she knew very well, and she expressed it regularly, that she was being followed, being threatened, was in danger. Um, but there was... I don't want to put words into anybody's mouth, but, but from what I understand, based on you know reading about her, is there there was almost like there was a protection, potential prote protection, because she had won this international award. Like she was too well known to be uh, murdered at that point. Um, I mean, that just shows you. It shows you that the state doesn't care. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Doesn't care for women's lives. And also, she was supposed to be protected by the state because right. you know the Inter American Court had giving her protective orders. So you're right, you know, she had won this very high profile award. She had protective orders for, um, mandated by the Inter-American Court and the Honduran state was supposed to protect her um, and didn't. So it shows you that they really have no respect for international human rights. And, you know, the Biden-Harris administration really, uh, you know, is not going to have any kind of success with this government in any kind of change um, you know, Juan Orlando Hernandez has extended his stay in Honduras, right? But the one reason why Mel Celaya was deposed was because the right, the right wing said that he wanted to stay in power for a really lo long time. Well, Juan Orlando Hernandez has violated the Honduran doing the Constitution same thing. Yeah. doing the same thing. So it's so, you know, it's so crazy and ironic. And, um, and I think that the State Department is afraid to let go of Juan Orlando at the same time because... Um, the other option is the Libertad and Refundación Party created by the resistance movement in Honduras. And, and they're afraid that that might be a leftist government. And so, I mean, that's the truth. So, you know. But I mean, but but meanwhile, it's everything has, it's become such a big crisis for this administration in its first hundred days. Um, we should be watching this very closely because the roots are exactly in this government and, and the other Central American governments and, you know, and funding... <laughs> I'm sorry, but funding the police is not the answer, as you just laid out very clearly. Uh, we will put all of uh, these organizations, if and in, in, please send us any, uh, in the information section. Share it with folks if you want to help out in any way. Uh, really great article. We'll have that link up as well. Uh, Suyapa Portillo, thank you for, for joining us and sharing the story. We'd love to have you back on to keep us updated because it's, it's a central issue right now. Thank you so much for covering this issue. Always. Thank you. All right, everybody, we will be right back with our amazing panel. We have Esperanza Fonseca and Suling Braun on to talk about what's happening. What is happening today? Lots. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Welcome back, Esperanza Fonseca. She is a labor and policy organizer and a member of a firm. And for the first time, we have Suling Braun. She is the founder of Another World is Possible. Uh, she is also a director with Durable Goods and formerly the creative director with BuzzFeed and at Upworthy and Viacom, <laughs> all these big, horrible corporate companies. Just kidding. BuzzFeed's pretty crappy right now, I gotta say. They've always been crappy. <laughs> 
clearly you didn't have to sign anything. <laughs> uh, I was freelance. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Which also shows why. Um, all right. So lots of news today. <laughs> Dorsey is saying LOL because he used to work there too. Oh, did you? We'll <laughs> Dorsey, our producer. Yeah. Um, okay. So in New Zealand, we have great news. Uh, New Zealand has a, has a socialist government. I love it. A socialist feminist government. And as a result, they get good things like paid leave following a miscarriage. Wow. <laughs> Juxtapose Honduras with New Zealand. Look at this. Um, our friend Kenzo Shibata says, this is feminism in act action. Girl bosses firing people is not. All right. What do you think it's going to take for us to get to a point where we approve measures allowing for paid leave after a miscarriage? Esperanza, you're an organizer. Yeah. So, you know, I think the first thing, of course, that I would say with anything is that we need to get organized, right? Um, because without being organized and without being able to exert our power, we're not going to be able to win anything. At the same time, however, I also think that we need to keep in mind that um, these reforms in New Zealand can be reversed at any moment, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way that all of the welfare state reforms that, you know, were given to workers, uh, you know, uh, back during the so-called like golden age of American capitalism were all reversed, right? right. Uh, so I think we need to not simply focus on what reforms we can pass, but how we can fundamentally change who is in control and who is in power. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because uh, we just finished up this segment about Honduras and how they enshrined it in, illegally probably, enshrined it into their constitution uh, that women cannot have abortions and, uh, you know, anti-LGBTQ legislation that existed. Um, but they put in their constitution, the right wing did, and it takes 75% of the legislature to uh, pull it out of the country. So it makes it very hard. The right wing is very good at this, Suling. They're very good at making sure that they never stop and they want to make sure everything is permanent. Well, there's a theme today, and that's that it's a crime to be poor, right? And it's all related, gender, the misogyny, um, the racism that we've been seeing. And the other theme, I think, is that we need to be organizing from the ground up, um, from the bottom up, because that's where the real change happens. Like, we're going to talk about Echo Park in a little bit, but we're talking about council members. We're talking about Brian Kemp. Sorry, guys, my first time. <clears throat> we're talking about Brian Kemp. We're talking about... Um, voter repression, and that all starts with the state legislature. So I agree with Esperanza that it's all about how we organize rather than the spe specifics of the policy. While that policy is super important, it's about how do we form these coalitions and solidarity amongst the working class? And that's like the only way we're gonna see change. And I do see positive things happening over here, and I'm not trying to jump the gun to that subject, but I was excited because I live in that council district and I have- We'll her. get to it, hold that one. Yeah, hold but I think okay. that's back to a theme, you know, um, I think she's absolutely right. You know, and I mean, there's the other aspect of this too, where I think part of organizing is also, we have issues on the progressive side with progressive uh, men in educating them about day-to-day -day misogyny to legislate, like le legislative misogyny. And I, I feel like there's a lot of work to be done um, organizing our allies. And I don't know how that looks uh, in within unions. I don't know how that looks within organizations that are not focused on on feminist issues. On our show, we know our audience is like 80% male. So hi, Fridays, <laughs> highest rated show. That's our little way. But um, I don't know. I mean, have you guys had experience? Like, do you recognize this issue and and do you think that we, like, what kind of work should we be doing to make sure all of our allies understand at, at a rooted level what misogyny looks like, Esperanza? Yeah, so, you know, I think that, um, I, I go back to my reading of Alexandra Kolontai, who I think everyone should read, um, but she, she says that, you know, the woman's question is not separate from the general social question. And I think the reverse of that is true as well, which is that men who want to build a better society, who want to overcome capitalist exploitation and oppression, um, also can't pretend like the woman question is somehow separate from that. Um, also, they can't 
can't pretend like they shouldn't speak on women's issues because they're not women. Because if we look at it, most of women's issues are actually men's issues, right? Issues of male aggression, male violence, the commodification of women. Those are all also men's issues that they need to take seriously. And uh, whenever they're organizing, this needs to be at the forefront of what they're doing. Thank I think a lot of those issues are systemic, um, those gender issues, that kind of aggression, because you kill the feminine in yourself um, when, when, when there's so much misogyny in our culture. Um, I think it starts there. I think it's all related to the same issues of um, social and class issues. I mean, but I see that in men. It's like, I, I, I'm trying to raise a little boy right now and try to um, raise him in ways that can, um, where he can be that ally, but also where it's okay for him to talk about his own experience. Um, you know, my experience, like I've, I've, I've stayed silent on a lot of my own experiences of say, you know, of um, I'm a, and this has come up recently because I'm, I'm half Chinese. My mom is um, uh, an immigrant from China who was hypersexualized and fetishized when she got to this country. Um, but it was something, you know, like, I'm talking to a lot of other people who've had this experience as well. You know, being mixed, you kind of think, oh, I'll just stay out of that conversation or my particular brand of um, my particular experience with racism is not as deep or not as um, painful as that of my other friends, you know, who are BIPOC. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, my experience doesn't count. It doesn't mean that I haven't borne witness to things or been, you know, erased. Um, and so I, I say that in relationship to what it's like to be an ally, male ally. Um, I think it's all our issue. Yeah. Um, related, I, I want to jump to the what's what's happening in the economy because it is related to this. So, uh, note, I, I'm, I'm not shocked by this. I don't think any of us are. But uh, The Cut did a story recently saying that economic abuse of women rises during COVID-19. Not to mention that working women, let's make this very clear, suffered the entirety of the economic uh, stress, working women, like the number is shocking. And now we see that um, economic abuse is, is allowed to flourish during this pandemic. Uh, I, you know, we, no, uh, there were mistakes made during the pandemic, the exacerbation of the pandemic rooted, you know, in capital, rooted in right-wing governments. We, I think we're very familiar with what got us here, but, you know, there's, there's crises that they, that capital takes advantage of, like a hurricane wiping out, you know, an island or a city, um, you know, disaster capitalism. This seems to be like a different form of disaster capitalism. Um, maybe, maybe they're rewriting it now. I mean, whether it's it's Amazon making more money than ever uh, because you know they lucked out, people bought things on it, but they also it was just how their money was invested. Um, but an exacerbation of exploitation of women. <laughs> It's 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 classic. It's there's there's nothing new about this. But um, is this the new norm, Esperanza? When we have a crisis? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's the new norm. I think that it's been the norm. Um, if you read Caliban and the Witch by Silvia Federici, which you all should read, she talks about how um, the exploitation and uh, mass uh, rape and violence against women is actually part of the foundation of capitalism, how capitalism came to be. Um, every time there's an economic crisis, uh, women are, you know, the hardest hit. Um, whenever, you know, capitalist countries invade other nations uh, and, you know, uh, sort of take their resources and their land, uh, they also take their women, you know, whether you're looking at uh, this continent in the United States or, you know, Thailand or the Philippines, et cetera. Um, women are always hit the hardest by imperialism, uh, by colonialism. And when you look at economic crises, um, another place that this is very clear is in the sex industry. Uh, whenever unemployment hits, it usually hits women the hardest. And that's when uh, the capitalists in the sex industry like the CEO of OnlyFans, for example, jump in to uh, try to push this American dream narrative that, oh, you know, you lost your job, et cetera. Well, here, you can make a bunch of money here, really, while he's just using her to make profit for himself and his company. So, like, you've seen this. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's just mask off right now, everything, right? I mean, the thing is, like, luckily we have shows like this, we have independent media, we have Twitter to expose all these things. You know, not 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 that many things have changed. It's just in everyone's face right now. So, um, you know, with COVID, it's like the frontline workers are majority BIPOC women. I mean, it's like, it's- But that's not being discussed up. This is so fury. I mean, I'm sorry to jump in. No, I, this no. is what, um, drives me crazy, you know, and, and, and you're both very familiar with labor and, and work in labor. I, I don't understand why there is, there aren't ad campaigns, like why labor majority female made up, um, unions with, with, with female leaders are not buying ads, not building a coalition saying, Hey, guess what? We all support our frontline workers. The majority are women of color, uh, immigrants who have been affected. Biden, like here is our plan. A raise in the minimum wage. Those are the it's, women that will be affected. It's, it's not, you know, kids who live in their parents' basements. It's not that. It's not. But the thing is, like, um, you know, we have UTLA. We're an LAUSD family out here. And, um, you know, there's there were smear pieces. There were propaganda pieces saying, like, oh, all the parents want, you know, they're like, want to go home, go back. Right. And um, this was a big issue out here. And you know who those parents were. It's people who were working from home, majority white and majority privileged. Not that we don't all want a safe return, but black and brown moms and teachers wanted the full staff vaccinated before they were going to go back. And that's what they bargained for. But there were literal propaganda pieces demonizing the union. And I'll tell you, you know, nothing's perfect, but this was a huge issue here. And if you really go into the communities that are hardest hit by COVID, those those moms did not want their kids to go back into school because it raised the risk for their families that were already living a ton of them in a one room apartment or whatnot. You know, and it's it is a it is a it is a pandemic of class. It really is. And you know, most of and most people who I know that have gotten it are people who can work from home, and you know, for better or worse, their viral loads are just lower. They're not out there reinfected anyway. Right. They're not. Uh being exposed and on the front line. Um, I, I, I want to shift real quick uh, to what's happening in Echo Park. You guys are both in, you're, you're both in LA. Um, this, what, there was a, a protest last night. Uh, so this is video of uh, protesters in Echo Park, LA, who were protesting an encampment uh, being, <laughs> being like torn down. There's a destruction of this tent encampment for unhoused people as we're in the middle of a pandemic, as we're in the middle of an economic crisis, as people are, some are being evicted, some aren't. I mean, there, the, the, there's a housing crisis that existed before and it's just going to get, continue to get worse and worse and worse. Um, you saw the police force, how they responded. Let's just remind folks, and I, I'm glad you mentioned this, Suling. Los Angeles is a democratic city with the democratic mayor, with the democratic city council and Echo Park is by no means conservative at all. And this is how they're dealing with a housing crisis. Uh, Suling, because you mentioned it, why don't you go first and, and give us your thoughts? So LA has been like perpetually moving the homeless community, or I'm sorry, the unhoused community around um, since the 84 Olympics. It's, and there's no, there's no active solutions. Um, our district is, um, it's a great place. I've lived here half, over half my life, um, but it's a typical story of gentrification. Um, but what has happened recently is, again, this has gotten a lot more um, attention throughout the community um, because I've seen a, a great rise in like mutual aid organizations, Street Watch LA, K-Town for All, um, a lot of things like that. Um, but we have a, council um, a councilman here who um, is taking a lot of real estate money, developer money. Um, we, they did a supposed ban on real estate developers giving council members money um, who are specifically vetting their projects. Um, but they kept this like little loophole in there that allows LLCs and entities to donate. But it's very hard to determine who owns these entities. So what we have here, yeah, yeah, and we have a massive gentrification problem, um, problem and the prices are sky high. So, you know, we just, but we have a demographic and a citizenry that is that an activist 
um, group. But again, lots of smear pieces, lots of propaganda pieces about how this encampment is like a festering um, Burning Man slash crime slash heroin infested encampment. But really, there's kind of a beautiful solidarity that's happened in the neighborhood. And I'll tell you what, um, I um, my husband was formerly in-housed. I don't know if you know that. No, you probably do. But um, my experience, um, I'm not really sure if you can truly, I don't know, this is a question for another time, be that progressive if you don't have any proximity to struggle. Like he shifted my views on what that would be like. Um, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that for him and for, for our family. But, um, oh, there's so much to talk about here. I should let someone else speak, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Esperanza, th th yeah. there's one more thing that, I mean, I'm glad that Suling brought this up about the council members taking uh, the LLC money that's not tracked. So in New York, we just finally banned the, the real estate LLC loophole because uh, you could have one, one like, apartment in, uh, you know, wherever that was housing like 700 LLCs and they would just, those LLCs would max out It'd be like a hundred LLCs all rooted from the same developers, of course, who would be maxing out to certain lawmakers in New York state. So that was finally banned, at least at the state level, um, not an issue at the city level. But I, I, I find the part of this that really ties back to organizing and democracies turnout during Los Angeles elections is abysmal. It's bad in New York, it's abysmal in Los Angeles. And it just seems like the checks and balances are not working right now. And so they get away with behaviors like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that again, um, we need to stop doing the same thing over and over again when it's not working and expecting it to change. I mean, the root of the homelessness problem is uh, not in, you know, like different policies or, you know, votes on city council. I mean, the economic system of capitalism has never existed without a reserve army of labor of people who are unemployed. I mean, it's one of the reasons why they're able to drive down wages and uh, not give concessions to the working class. So the root of this issue is a, a economic, social, political issue. And under capitalism, there will never not be homeless people. I mean, you know, some of you know, I myself was homeless in LA and there are no resources and that's not going to be fixed by some policy. I mean, look at the, uh, look at the vote of uh, Nitya Raman, who was, you know, backed by the DSALA, and then she voted in favor of a development um, in LA that was, you know, a part of the larger gentrification project. I mean, and, and her reasoning for that was because she wanted to be equal and, you know, said, oh, it's a systemic problem, not, you know, an individual problem. Um, so I think we just need to understand that, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to solve this issue as long as we exist in the capitalist system under the rule of the capitalist class and their state, which was made for them. And eventually we're gonna need to transition to socialism, um, which will actually address the root of these issues. And when we elect socialists, uh, demand that they behave like socialists and vote like socialists if we're gonna go the electoral route. Um, I wanna, <laughs> this one drives me crazy. I just had a lot, I, 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 uh, Pete Buttigieg, our transportation secretary. Um, has a plan for taxi workers, right? That <laughs> infuriates me. Uh, he wants to tax drivers, taxi drivers, by the mile, by the mile. Let's play that. Long -term what about a mileage-based tax? So I think that shows a lot of promise. If, if we believe in that so-called user pays principle, the idea that part of how we pay for roads is you pay based on how much you drive, uh, the gas tax used to be the obvious way to do it. It's not anymore. So a so-called vehicle miles traveled tax or mileage tax, whatever you want to call it, could be a way to do it. Uh, it's not just taxi workers. He's, he's, he's broadening it to users, not workers, users. <laughs> This was a big debate in New York because we also, there's a debate over um, uh, like basically taxes over the bridge and, and tunnels. And it of course hurts workers that don't live in Manhattan, right? People who go in and out of the city uh, and, and there's an added tax and uh, very controversial for, for the right reasons. But this is the guy who, I mean, let's, let's not forget that this administration um, has been very close to Uber and Lyft, has been very uh, close to the rideshare companies. The vice president of the United States is uh, brother-in-law legally represents one of them, Uber. 
uh, the, David Pluff from the Obama administration was the head lobbyist for Uber. Uh, what do we expect? <laughs> what do we expect? So let's let's come up with other solutions. I want to be creative here. Esperanza, if you wanted to generate this revenue, what would you come up with? If you needed to generate the revenue, which of course is a whole other conversation. I mean, honestly, uh, you know, aside putting the question of revenue generation aside, I think Uber and Lyft should be completely shut down. I mean, I don't like an Airbnb along with it. I mean, I think it's done nothing but destroy the lives of, you know, tens of thousands of workers across the country. Suling, <laughs> rapid round. I agree. Um, I can't tell you what the solution is because I can't listen to Pete Buttigieg. I zone out because I don't, I can't, his word salad just completely is off-putting to me. I don't need like, and I don't even think it's McKinsey speak. <laughs> I think it's just word salad. So I can't really answer that. I mean, like, this is, I can't wait to see. He was my least favorite candidate. He was literally my least favorite candidate in the Democratic primary. 100%. I can't wait to see how the taxi unions wreck him. Like, I just can't wait to see the response. I mean, in New York a few weeks ago, we saw taxi workers protesting on bridge. It was so moving to see how they were organizing. Um, I cannot wait to see this administration wrecked for this because it is offensive. It is 90s era McKenzie strategy. I mean, how can you say you're going to put together a $1.9 trillion package and support unions and support workers and then have this effing idiot say this? Like, and he wants a political future? But, you know, I think um, that's why we can't let this moment pass us without exposing the difference between the form of what the Democratic Party says, that they're pro-worker, et cetera, and then the content of what they actually do, which is just, I mean, dispossess us. I mean, look at how, like you said, in Los Angeles, what's happening to uh, the homeless population here, to the working class here. Our lives are becoming increasingly more and more precarious. And when we rise up against that, then we're met with, uh, you know, for example, that journalist from The Intercept getting his arm broken um, from one of those abusive, violent LAPD or LASD cops. So I think, again, this is one of the reasons why we can't be blinded by the rhetoric of the Democratic Party. They're owned by big capital, uh, not by us. And until we have a party and, uh, you know, an organization of our own, we're not going to be able to make the Democratic Party ours. Um, and I think we, the sooner we realize that, the better. Agreed. Agreed? <laughs> but think about how scared they are if they're doing things like breaking a journalist's arm. Or put, you know, or, or you know, uh, some of our colleagues have been pushed to the ground documenting various um, protests. I mean, the threat is real to them, and that's that's where we have to focus. We have to focus on rewriting our own stories around um, what we will accept and these capitalist fallacies that we've been living with. Um, housing is a human right. Let's get back to that. It is not a luxury, but all of these things are telling us that it is. I mean, if you're, if you're not a party that's based in human rights and understanding in the deepest way is what human rights are, you're not going to be operating from that space. Um, Suling Braun, Esperanza Fonseca, love you. Love Fem Fridays. Thank you for joining us this Fem Friday and for offering your brilliance. Always, always appreciated. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Sue. <laughs> All right, we're going to do some shout outs. We have Pete from Oakland says that Georgia video has me shaking. White men with guns can scream in the faces of cops in an attempt to kidnap the governor, but a black woman can't knock on the door. Not only a black woman, a black elected official who deserves their rights. Uh, hashtag defend their butts. Mr. Fancy Pants, Solidarity Forever. He subscribed for two months on Twitch. Thank you for subscribing for two months on Twitch at Tier 1. Awesome. Kowalski from Nebraska, Sun and Love, UCV Light, and Renee Artist subscribe to Tier 1. Thank you. Patrick Emmerich, I've been listening to the podcast lately, but great show to watch live. Hashtag Fem Friday. Much appreciated. I'm a big podcast person. I, um, that's why I try, we try our hardest to kind of make it podcast accessible because it's, it's hard sometimes, but we appreciate you. Uh, all right. Who else do we have here? Midi Docs and Mario. Thank you for working those algorithms as usual. And our moderators at YouTube, uh, Bob C. Choken or the Orb and Chuck Diesel and over on Twitch, A Difficult Truth, Dorian Sapiens, Nug Wrangler, our means and Nightbot. Thank you for keeping the chat rooms troll free. Special shout out to Harvey K, Professor Harvey K. I didn't give him a shout out yesterday. 
and uh, it was noticed. So I want to give him an extra shout out today because he shows up every day. Uh, M- MVP, I would say. MVP of the TNS show. We should get him swag. Or maybe we should make swag with like a Harvey K quote on it. I'll think about that. Anywho, uh, thank you all. Have a wonderful weekend. We will see you on Tuesday. Uh, same time, same place, 3 p.m. Eastern. Stay in solidarity. 